So we had an interesting week. I'm going to share a little bit of that with you. <clears throat> on Sunday, or perhaps it was on Monday, Lydia stopped nursing. And we never had a child that just stopped nursing suddenly like that. So Katie almost wondered if she was uh, pregnant, and because that was, I think, one other time she stopped, a child stopped nursing when she got pregnant, took some tests, wasn't pregnant. And Lydia wouldn't receive the pacifier. She wouldn't eat. She wouldn't drink. And she's already a pretty small baby. I mean, her father is 5'7", and her grandfathers are about 5'7", too. And so considering that she was already so small, it was even scarier that she was losing weight. I think she lost two pounds over about four or five days. And so Katie took her into the hospital. They couldn't find anything wrong with her. You know, they looked at her. Apparently, they didn't look at her well enough, as you'll see in just a moment. And uh, couldn't find anything wrong with her. Brought her home. She still wouldn't eat or drink. She's been our easiest baby. I don't like to say best baby. I mean, she's not our best baby. We've had seven other wonderful babies before her. But she's been the easiest in terms of not crying and being uh, fairly comfortable. But, you know, these four or five days, she just would not stop crying. She wouldn't sleep at night. She was uncomfortable all week. And so we were praying about it, and it was, I think it was particularly difficult for Katie. I think, th- I think mothers are affected more differently, or mothers are affected differently than fathers are, and they feel things differently. It seems mothers have an intuition, and Katie just knew all week that something was wrong with Lydia. And so then last night, I was in my office, and I was, pre- I was finishing all the preparations for this morning and trying to get the worship guy done, stuff like that. Pastor Nathan actually finished all that because I had to go to the hospital after what happened. I appreciated him doing that. But Katie calls me, and I'm in the office, and she says, I, I know what's wrong with Lydia. There's something uh, attached to the roof of her mouth. And I said, I said, are you sure? And she said, yeah. I'll show. And so she races down here, and she shows me. And we couldn't see it very well, but I took my camera on my phone, and we tried to hold her mouth open and, and record, because I thought the camera would point in there a little easier than um, I could look in there and then look at the video, and sure enough, we could see something. And I, I well, it, there was something attached to the roof of her mouth, but I didn't know that at first. It was pink, so it kind of looked like the roof of her mouth. I thought maybe, I mean, would it be a tumor or some sort of weird growth, and this is why she won't nurse and everything. And so um, we went over to the parsonage, and Jill's kind of holding her, and I'm digging in there with my finger trying to get out whatever it is, and I couldn't get it out. And so we went down to Randall's Children's Hospital. And they dug into her mouth, and it was, uh, you can't, it's underneath the wristband here, it was a press-on fingernail that she had picked up, and she had put in her mouth, and it had secured itself to the top, to the roof of her mouth, and so she wouldn't, she wouldn't eat or drink anything because of that, wouldn't receive the pacifier, couldn't be comforted, and apparently when Kitty took Lydia into the doctor earlier in the week, and they examined her, they didn't examine her that well because they didn't even see the fingernail that was attached to the roof of her mouth, and so when I was trying to pull it out, I felt like I could have pulled harder, but, I mean, worried about doing some damage to the, to the roof of my, you know, daughter's mouth. And so since we're in a series on wisdom, I did want to pass along one lesson that I learned from this. And the lesson is, wise fathers don't give their daughters press-on nails. <laughs> okay? Just want you to go ahead and take that one with you, Okay. <laughs> So the title of this morning's sermon is Acquiring Wisdom. I acquired some wisdom this past week. Go ahead and turn to Proverbs 1. We are thankful, we're very thankful that, um, to, to determine what was wrong, 
but we would appreciate your prayers. I don't, I don't think that this request, I mean, she is eating now, but she's not nursing, and Kitty had been pumping during the week, and so we would like Lydia to resume nursing, so if we come to mind, we would greatly appreciate your prayers for her to resume um, nursing. That would mean a lot to us, and especially be a blessing to Katie to be able to continue uh, nursing our baby. So Proverbs 1, we interrupted our series on wisdom for two weeks, so I'm going to go ahead and briefly review if you, if you follow the, the previous two sermons, wisdom could seem a little bit mysterious or almost paradoxical. And what I mean by that is our first sermon was on Job 28, and it was titled, Where is Wisdom? And I gave it that title because if you can remember, Job had grown fairly tired of his friend's uh, lack of wisdom in all of their counsel, all the platitudes and cliches that they were giving him as they're preaching to him chapter after chapter. And so you reach Job 28, and Job starts asking, where is wisdom? Where can wisdom be found? Job 28, 12, but where shall wisdom be found? Job 28, 20, from where then does wisdom come? Now, with Job asking where to find wisdom, how does wisdom look then? This isn't a trick question. It it looks hard to find. I mean, it looks unavailable. Then our next sermon, which was our previous sermon, because we only had two, was on Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33, and that sermon was titled, Wisdom Calls Out. And if you just look with me at verse 20 in Proverbs 1, wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. And so here, You've got wisdom crying aloud, raising her voice. She's in the streets, the markets, entrance of the city gates. She's in the most prominent places, and she just keeps calling out to everyone who's passing by. And so how does wisdom seem in these verses? The opposite. Very easy to find, very available. And so it kind of comes back to that same question, which causes wisdom to seem somewhat mysterious or paradoxical. Is wisdom hard to find or hard to acquire? Or is wisdom very available? And really the answer is yes. And I hope these verses can help us understand why there is this paradoxical nature with wisdom and how to navigate through it. Why wisdom is so available, yet at the same time, it's, it's hard for us to acquire or to, to find. Look, we're going to pick up right where we left off um, from our previous sermon. We read chapter 1, verses 20 through 33, and we're going to resume at chapter 2, verse 1. I think these verses, verses 1 through 10, describe the pursuit of wisdom probably better than any other. I mean, there's a few wisdom because it's presented so frequently in the Proverbs and other places in Scripture as a treasure or as something very valuable. There are many places that show it as something to be pursued. But I chose these verses because I think they're probably the best in all of Scripture describing the, uh, really the intense pursuit of wisdom or how intensely we should pursue wisdom, I should say. So look with me at verse 1. We're going to go through verses 1 through 4 pretty quickly and then talk about the application. So the father is speaking to his son, and he says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, my words and my commandments, those are synonyms for wisdom. And so the father is talking to his son and he tells him to do two things with wisdom. He tells him to receive wisdom and he tells him to treasure wisdom. Let's consider both of those. So when he tells him to receive wisdom, he's describing or he's commanding his son to have a receptiveness to wisdom, uh, to be willing to and, and ready to receive it because wisdom's of no benefit to those people who will not receive it. You could hear me say that. 
And then you could say, well, who's not going to receive wisdom or who wouldn't receive wisdom? And what's the answer to that? There's lots of people that won't receive wisdom. There are plenty of people in this life who are foolish. There are plenty of people who have wisdom shared with them, and they reject it. Maybe you have spoken with people, and you, you could, sometimes you can even tell before the conversation is over. I mean, you're sharing God's word with someone, and you don't even get to the end of the sentence, and you know this person is not going to do what, you're, what God's word is saying to them. I mean, that's one of the reasons when I counsel people, and I would highly recommend this approach, don't tell people what God's word says Give them a Bible, have them read the verse themselves, and then ask them what the verse is saying, and then who is counseling them. God is through his word, and so they're not rejecting you. It's not some contest here between you and them. Instead, if they have a problem with what's said, and it's God's word that's speaking to them, then they have a problem with God, or they have a problem with God's word. And so some people, you can tell them, they can look at God's word, they see the wisdom calling out to them, and they're just not going to receive it. If we want to be humble, I think we can probably acknowledge times. I mean, just because you're not a fool doesn't mean you haven't been foolish at least a few times in your life, right? I mean, I hope I'm not the only person that acknowledges times I've been foolish. Um, the fool in Proverbs is habitually. I mean, that's what characterizes this person's life is foolishness. But all of us at times have been foolish. We can think of times when people have shared wisdom or counsel with us. We haven't received it. We haven't responded uh, as well to it as we should. The second, and so that's what the Father says. He says, receive wisdom, embrace it, be, be receptive to it, apply it, own it. I mean, the, we, we sort of talked before, it's an important distinction with fools. The, the problem for a fool isn't that a, prob, that a fool hasn't heard. If a fool hadn't heard, he wouldn't be a fool, he would be what? He'd be ignorant. And that's a major distinction between fools and ignorant people. Scripturally speaking, there's not much wrong with being ignorant, but the problem for fools is they have heard. So it's very wrong to think that a fool hasn't heard. The person is foolish because fools have heard, but they're not applying it. They're not obeying it. So the Father says, you know, don't be a fool. Hear, receive, obey, apply. The second thing he tells his son is to treasure wisdom. This is referring to the the son's sensitivity to it, how much he should value it, how he should appreciate wisdom's um, worth. Because wisdom is of no value to people who don't recognize its value. Wisdom has no worth for the person who thinks that wisdom is worthless. And so one of the first things for, that allow people to be wise is they recognize how valuable wisdom itself is. You remember from our previous sermon, Proverbs, Job 28, 13, man does not know wisdom's worth. That's one of the uh, main faults of unregenerate man is he has no appreciation for the value of wisdom. He thinks any number of things in life are considerably more uh, worthy to him than wisdom itself. Gaining wisdom begins with appreciating, appreciating its, its worth and value. Look at me at verse 2. So the Father says, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. One more time. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. This is saying that the, the ear, uh, the heart, spiritually speaking, should be captivated by wisdom. And it's all about paying attention. And I'll just use a sermon. I'll just use this moment as an example. There are people, when they're listening to a sermon... And maybe it's a temptation all of us face 
to start looking at the, our watch or, or wondering how, how long this has been going on or how much longer the sermon's going to be. It can, it, it can be any time God's word is going forward. It can be in a church service. It can be a home fellowship. It can be a Sunday school or conference you're attending. Now, for wise people, I mean, it's deliberate. It's intentional. It, it takes an amount of effort to be, you know, not just present when God's word is going forth, but you have to take your ear and you have to tune in. You have to take your heart and ensure that you're internalizing what is being said. I mean, how many people can sit and listen to the word of God? How many people can sit under, under wonderful preaching and not benefit from it simply because they're not doing what this word, what this verse says? And so there, there is a, there's a real intentionality to it when the word of God is going forward to be captivated by it and ensure that your ear is giving attention and that your heart is uh, inclined to it. This morning, someone came up, I mean, it's a compliment, I'll, I'll just mention the person's name, is John Madela, and he was sharing with me, and he was sharing something about the sermon, and I said, John, you know what really, I really appreciate about you is you've been a Christian a long time, and you have as much enthusiasm for the Word of God as any, as any young Christian I've ever met. And I told John, I said, you know, I really hope my passion for the word of God does not diminish the longer I'm becoming a Christian. You know, someone first becomes a Christian and they're just so enthusiastic and hungry and thirsty for the word of God, they can't get enough of it. But after you've been a Christian a long time, you probably, and the, and the pastor says, turn to this chapter or this parable or this account, and you know it. And you can very easily tune out. And I told John, I said, John, I hope as long as I'm a Christian, I will still have the same hunger and thirst for the word of God that it seems like you do. And I, I greatly appreciate that. Any men that I see who have been Christians for a long time that are still learning and is still as passionate, it's a, it's a tremendous example for me. I'm always thankful for all those, all those men who set, who set that kind of example for me to see. And it's, it's just doing what this verse says and making sure that we are tuning in spiritually, our ear and our heart. Now, other people, they don't do this. I mean, they're going through the motions they're, they're at church, but they're not really listening, not, with, not spiritually speaking. They're, their heart isn't in it. They're letting the time pass. They're letting the, the word of God kind of go in one ear and out the other. It's not, it's not being planted in their heart. It's not taking root there. The seed is just kind of laying on the top of the soil. It's not going in. And that's, that's what happens for people that are not captivated by wisdom. That's for people who don't have a passion or a hunger for wisdom. And for people that don't have that, they don't grow in wisdom. The, the pursuit of wisdom requires too much diligence. It is, it is too difficult to acquire wisdom that for people who are complacent or lazy, it, they just don't grow in it. It is just not gained. I mean, that's one of the points of these verses, that it requires considerable effort. I'm guessing for the rest of the sermon, we're going to see a lot of serious, attentive people now. <laughs> uh, look at verse 3. <clears throat> He says, yes, if you call off for insight and you raise your voice for understanding, this is what we're talking about. This is a very diligent pursuit of wisdom. The father tells the son, he says, you need to call out for it. And he means spiritually speaking. He's, he's describing this intense desire for it. He says, lift up your, raise your voice to get it. You can tell that this is a person who just craves wisdom, craves growing in it. Look at verse four. If you seek it, like silver, if you search for it as hidden treasures. And these words are again about desire. 
this is, there's a strong commitment here from this person, a very strong devotion to wisdom. The person doing these things really wants to be wise and will uh, be wise. And it's only these people who truly desire to find wisdom that actually find it. In our first sermon in Job 28, I mean, that was kind of the reason I want to begin with that sermon where, where Job describes all of these efforts that man um, goes to to find what? Doesn't I remember from Job 28? Man will work so hard. I mean, he'll, he'll put tunnels under mountains. He'll swing from, from ropes and risk his life as he goes down in the cave. He'll look high. He'll look, he'll look low to find what? Gold, silver. And God's point is, you know, how unfortunate that man will not put forth that same effort to gain or to grow in wisdom. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words hidden treasures and you can write Matthew thirteen forty four in Proverbs verse chapter two verse four. It says, "Search for it as hidden treasures." You can circle hidden treasures and write Matthew thirteen forty four. That's where Jesus told the parable of the hidden treasure, and I'm mentioning it because I think it this parable illustrates what a good pursuit of wisdom, a very fitting one. I'm, I can't say for certain that this is what. Uh, Jesus had in mind when he preached that parable, but to me, this is what comes to mind. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven, or you could say wisdom, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up, and then in his joy over finding this wisdom, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, that is a serious desire for, for this treasure or for wisdom. This is just picturing to me the pursuit that would hopefully characterize our lives, that we would value it so greatly we would be willing, you know, to give up almost anything and everything else to have it. Now, the main point of these first four verses, now we can start considering the application for them, is that acquiring wisdom involves effort on our part, and this brings us to lesson one. Wisdom involves effort on our part. Wisdom involves effort on our part. So some words in Scripture a little more important than others, like, for example, the words and or to or or. They're important for understanding the, the context or what's being communicated, but you don't have to draw a whole lot of attention to them. Verbs, on the other hand, are important words. When you see verbs, you're seeing action, you're typically being told to do something, you're being shown something that God is expecting you or at times commanding you to do. And the reason that I mention that is in these four verses, and I'll, I'll try to drum out, but you might have already noticed Solomon is just piling verb upon verb upon verb upon verb upon verb. It's just over and over and over. Look with me. He says, receive my words, treasure up my commandments, make your ear attentive, incline your heart, call out, raise your voice, seek, search, just repeatedly the actions that he says need to be taken on our parts to gain wisdom. And so if you were to have come in here today and thought, well, you know, wisdom, pretty easy to obtain. It's in the word of God. And, you know, all I need to do is open it and read it. I would say that's, that's partly true. Yes, there is that availability of wisdom in God's word, but these verses completely argue against wisdom being something that is easily obtained. The point of these verses is that it's, it's difficult. 
These verses would destroy that notion that you can obtain wisdom easily. And, and you probably know exactly what I'm talking. I don't think I'm the only person who's ever experienced this. You, you are a Christian. You love God's word. You're committed to, to reading it. But has, have you ever been reading God's word? Maybe you read even a couple chapters, and then you got up and walked away, and what did you think? What did I just read? I'm not the only one that's happened with, right? Does that happen to you guys too? <laughs> and so you kind of walk away and you're like, I, I just read two or three chapters. I think I remember the book I was in, but I cannot even remember what those verses were. I mean, this is why I, I'll just, you could disagree with me. That's completely fine. Um, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of plans to have people reading the Bible in a year. I tend to think people are trying to cram three to five chapters you know, into this short period of time. And then if they get behind one day, the next day they're reading 10 chapters and they're kind of racing through them. And then I think it's better to read a few verses and and truly meditate on them and digest those than to read three to five verses, chapters, and not remember anything you read. And so you say, well, is that just your opinion, Pastor Scott? I mean, how would you defend that scripturally? The way that I would defend it is I see scripture describing a very uh, intense uh, pursuit. There is a meditation. There is a memorization. There is a study. If you want, anyone can read God's word and not get wisdom from it. If you want to get wisdom from God's word, then, it, then it, there must be this effort that these verses are describing. There is a digesting. There is a consuming. There's a meditating on. There is a considering. You, you're kind of working with God's word while God's word is working on you. You can feel it. You're reading verses and you're thinking, how does this apply to my life? How is this going to make me be more like Christ? Okay, this part convicts me. I need to be more like that. That's how to, that's how to glean wisdom from God's word. But the person who's just ripping through the verse says, okay, I got one more chapter to read and then I'm done. I don't think they're going to get a lot of wisdom from that. And so I would just say, I would encourage you to ensure that when you walk away from your Bible reading time, that there are some treasures some truths that you, have taken, that you have taken with you. And I say that because nobody becomes wise by accident. That's one of the points of these verses. Nobody stumbles upon wisdom. You know, you're, you're not kind of walking along, trip and fall, and then say, oh, I found some wisdom. These verses are completely arguing against that. They're saying that to get wisdom requires considerable effort. And the part about this that can be sad is people, all of, I mean, all of us, this could be the case for all of us, can work, you know, long work weeks, whether it's, I mean, for stay-at-home mothers, their long work week is in the home. Their, their work week is longer than some, the husbands who are at the workplace, laboring tirelessly, you know, in the workplace, maybe it's for a paycheck, maybe it's for a promotion, maybe it's to finish this project. But if we're not putting forth that same effort for wisdom, then it's an evidence that we don't appreciate wisdom as much as we appreciate this other thing that we are laboring for, whether it's the paycheck, whether it's the promotion, whether it's that project that we want to finish. Most of us are willing to work very diligently in our jobs because we want to earn money. In my, in my time as a pastor, maybe, I, I don't know if it's just the, the church I pastor, the people I'm around are typically very hardworking people. I don't know really any. I don't know any deadbeat husbands or fathers. The women I know, the wives and mothers, are all very hardworking. So to me, I'm, I don't feel burdened to come up here and discuss a local problem of laziness. I think most people in our church are, are the opposite. Might even you know work too much at times. Maybe we didn't need to have a sermon about rest or something. 
But the question in my mind is, are we putting forth as much effort spiritually toward the, the spiritual disciplines, whether it's prayer or scripture memorization, acquiring wisdom is the effort we're putting forth in these other areas of our lives. Now, my suspicion, this is what Katie and I were talking about, and I thought it was a good point. She said, if we can see from heaven's perspective how valuable wisdom actually is, we would put forth considerably more effort to obtain it. We would be considerably more diligent toward acquiring wisdom. It, on this side of heaven, none of us are going to see wisdom for all of its worth and value. But when we get to heaven and we're able to see just how valuable wisdom really is, how much greater its worth is than gold and silver, then I think if we could see that now, it would be the highest pursuit of our lives because it's the, it's the pursuit of truth. I mean, there's nothing that is more valuable than that. The fact that we don't pursue it more diligently is evidence that we aren't, are not appreciating wisdom's value as it's presented here in God's word. I want to conclude this lesson by pointing out something that these verses are indirectly teaching. Um, what I mean is there's, some, there's the truth we've been talking about that the verses directly teach, but there's also an indirect, the, the direct teaching is this, if you want wisdom, you need to pursue it diligently. The indirect teaching is this, if you do not pursue wisdom diligently, you will not obtain it. And so I think the verses are also teaching us or challenging us that if we're complacent or if we're lazy, if we're not diligent, we are not going to acquire wisdom. That's one of the indirect teachings from these verses. If you look right at the end of Proverbs chapter 1, look in verse 32. The simple are killed by their turning away, and notice this, the complacency of fools destroys them. That's the person that's being complacent, or they're fairly indifferent toward wisdom. They're spiritually lazy, and because they don't desire it strongly enough, they don't acquire it, and they end up being destroyed is what it, is what it says. So these are, they just don't care. I mean, these are people, they wake up each day, and there, there might be some moral things that they pursue, whether it's their work or whether it's some relationships, but wisdom, that's just, that can be further from their minds. They just have this terrible indifference toward it and this com- uh, complacency, so they don't grow in wisdom. And you might remember, this is something we talked about in a previous sermon. People can have a super high IQ. They can be brilliant in the world's eyes. They can have multiple PhDs, and they can still be what? They can be fools. Conversely, there can be people poorly educated. I mean, you know, not the best, not the best writers, not the best mathematicians. Tremendously wise people. Tremendously wise. Because wisdom is independent of IQ. It is, it is independent of earthly intelligence. You can have people that lack earthly intelligence but can still be phenomenally wise. And, and why is that? Those people are not, those wise people, they're not complacent. They didn't become wise sort of coincidentally or by chance. They had been diligent. They had pursued it, read God's word, and God graciously poured out wisdom on them regardless of what their intelligence was or wasn't like. The next lesson, acquiring wisdom lesson two must be our daily pursuit. Must be our daily pursuit. I was going to say a daily pursuit, but I wanted to say our daily pursuit because I wanted it to be personal. 
And the reason I wanted it to be personal is I think that the verses themselves are, are presented personally. And I say that because there's a repeated use of the word our and your. In the ver- I just happened to notice when I was studying, there is a repeated use of the words our and your. It makes it very personal, seven times in four verses. And the reason that it's made so personally is because we must make wisdom our own. He's saying, he says, you're, you're the one who, who must do this. We must work for it. Nobody can gain wisdom for us. Nobody can acquire wisdom in our place. If you just think about children, if I can have all the children tune in for a moment, I'll, try, I think there's an, I'll address them a couple times in the sermon because I think there's considerable application for them. You can have families with wise parents who share the word of God with their children, and to share the word of God with their children is to share wisdom with their children. And in those families, typically, you will see wise children come up. You will see children who grow in wisdom. But sometimes you'll see a family, and there might be you know, multiple wise, godly children, and then there will just be this one child just goes off the deep end and is foolish. Now, why is that? I mean, you, I'll tell you simply, because the parents cannot make their children wise. All you can do is you can wash your family with the word, you can, you can bring them to church or Bible studies or conferences, you can read Christian materials with them, you can make God's word available, you can turn on the radio and have God's word washing over your family and going out over your, your, your children, but you can't make them wise. And that's why you'll see some children... In a, in a godly home, will become wise because they have owned it, they have embraced it, but then there will be that child that has rejected it and has chosen the path of foolishness instead. And it's one of the, one of the um, you know, I've, talked to, I've just talked to enough parents, I've, I've looked at them, and I, I've, when they've had a rebellious child or a foolish child, I've had this conversation, I think, three or four times, and I've, I don't think I've asked a mother, but I've asked three or four fathers who had multiple godly children and then one rebellious or foolish child. And I said, looking back, what do you think you would do differently? Or do you think there's anything you did that, that led to this or caused the child to behave this way? And they, said, and they all said the same. They said, you know, we were not perfect parents, but there's nothing I, can, I look back on and there's nothing that I did that I can see that contributed to this. It just seems that my, my child tro- chose the path of foolishness or rebellion despite the wisdom that had been made available, despite the parents' you know, best efforts. And why is that? Because children must learn wisdom for themselves. Even wise parents cannot learn wisdom. They can't, you know, spiritually speak and open their child's chest and just pour wisdom into that child's heart. It, the child has to do what these verses are saying and what? Incline their ear, incline their heart to it. Similarly, people in churches. People can have pastors, they can have elders, they can have Bible teachers, they can listen to sermons, they can go to home fellowships or Sunday school. Wisdom can be shared with them, but you can't make people learn wisdom. I, I can't make people tune in. I can't, I can't prevent people from being distracted right now or thinking about something else or their mind or heart going someplace else. We must all learn wisdom for ourselves. We must all have that very strong desire to acquire it. And one other thing that I think is really important in these verses, all those verbs or all the action words, notice none of them are past tense. They are all present tense. And that's significant. That's why for the lesson, I said it must be a daily pursuit. In other words, 
when you were saved, even if you can't remember the exact, you know, day or moment, which is, which is fine. I know many people that can't pin it down to a day, but when you were saved, it happened in a moment because conversion or justification is an instantaneous event where your unrighteousness is imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to you. That's justification by faith and it happens in a moment. The pursuit of wisdom happens over a lifetime following conversion. And it must, be, it must be a daily pursuit. I mean, look at the way these verbs are presented. Receive, not received. Treasure, not treasured. Make your ear attentive. Present tense. You have to do this every single day. Incline your heart, not inclined. You know, call out, raise, seek, search. All present tense verbs because these are to be ongoing activities in our lives. Attaining wisdom is not something that you just did one time, or you had one good week, or you had one good sermon you listened to, or there was, or there was one month where you were really committed to reading God's word, but for the other 11 months of the year, you didn't do it. The point is, it's a, it is a, a daily discipline to grow in wisdom. I think many examples could be used to illustrate this point, but I chose one that I'm most familiar with from my days working out. And when I used to work out, I found that most people fell into one of two categories. There were people, when I was at the gym, I would see them for maybe a week or two, and then I would not see them for weeks, or typically I wouldn't see them for a couple months. And then I'd see them again, and then I wouldn't see them again for a couple weeks. And, so, you know, I'd talk to them, and they'd say, well, I'm just getting back into working out. But they'd say that pretty much every time I talked to them. There was even one guy, and every time I see him, saw him at the gym, er, I'm not kidding, every single time he'd tell me I'm just getting back into working out. And I think he got back into working out like 30 or 50 times or something. And so you can guess when that's what someone's fitness <laughs> uh, you know, regime looks like or regimen looks like, that they don't make a whole lot of progress. Now, for other people, um, they're going to the gym and they're going, you know, maybe not every single day, but some number of days per week, regularly, week after week, month after month, year after year, and these people generally make good progress. I want you to picture something. Imagine someone who's made considerable progress in the gym, and someone goes up to this person and says, hey, I see you here often. Can you just tell me which workout it was that allowed you to be so successful? Or you have made so much progress. I'd I'd really like to make that much progress myself. Can you tell me which meal it was that you ate that contributed so dramatically to your success, right? Because I've told most people that succeed in fitness will say that what they do in the kitchen or with their diet is as important as what they do in in the gym or with lifting weights. Or if you said, you know, for months I've seen you at the gym, I can tell, you know, it's helped you so much. Which day was it or even which week was it that allowed you to be so successful, or which one was the best? I mean, what's this person going to do, the, the, the person who's been successful in fitness? They're going to look at them and think that it's an absurd question that they're asking. They're going to say that, you know, it's not one workout, it's not one meal, it's not one day, it's not one week or, or one month that allowed them to be successful. They're going to tell you that it was all of those workouts. They're going to tell you that it was all of those meals. There's, they're going to tell you it was all of those weeks or months or years of consistency that allowed them to be successful. And something else that's interesting, out of all of the hundreds or maybe thousands of workouts and meals, they're not going to remember 99% of them. And, but they, were, they 
they still benefited them. I mean, it was all of those meals and workouts that they can't remember that allowed them to be successful. And here's why I'm telling you this. I chose this illustration because I see strong similarities with acquiring wisdom. If you went to the wisest person you know, and you said, you know, tell me which time was it reading God's word, or, or which Bible study was it that you participated in, or, or which sermon was it that you heard, or what conference was it that you attended that allowed you to be so wise, they're going to look at you kind of confused, um, surprised that you would try to chalk it up, you know, to one moment in their life that allowed them to be successful. They're going to tell you that it wasn't one devotional time. They're going to tell you that it wasn't one day that they woke up and committed to reading the Bible, you know, super well that day. They're going to tell you that it's, it wasn't one church service or one conference or, or one book. They're, they're, and they're also going to tell you it wasn't, it wasn't one week or one month when they did really well. I mean, it's nice if you have one really good month of, of Bible reading or one, one month that you're particularly committed to the Lord. But I can tell you if that's, if that's what you got, that's not going to that's not going to produce a lot of wisdom. Anyone who's very wise is going to tell you that it was a lot more than one week or one month or even one year, but it was, it was the consistency all of those weeks, all of those months, and they're not going to remember. I mean, have you ever thought about this? For most of us, or for, for people who have been Christians for, you know, at least 10 years, you've probably heard hundreds of sermons by that point. So many of us have probably heard thousands of sermons. How many of them can you remember? Not, I mean, there might be the occasional very good sermon or message you remember. But, or maybe even the one time you sat down and read the Bible, and that day was so profound and impactful that you do remember exactly what you're reading. But for 99% of the other times of devotional times or Bible reading times or sermons, church services, you don't remember. But here's the thing. Just like all of those meals and workouts— that that fit person doesn't remember, all of those sermons and Bible reading times still benefited. I mean, that's the, that's the wonderful blessing of God's Word. You don't, have to, you don't have to remember every single sermon or every, t- every single time you read the Word, but there, it's benefiting you if you're doing the things that these verses are saying, inclining your ear, inclining your heart. So to gain wisdom is to daily do what these verses say, receive, treasure up, make your ear attentive, call out, raise out your voice, seek it like silver, search for it like hidden treasure. And I want to conclude this lesson by saying this. I I hope it's been clear by this point that there is a price to pay to gain wisdom. And I wanted that point to be clear because I think that's the point that's made very clear by these verses. I don't have an, an ax to grind or any sort of agenda. I'm stressing that because I think the verses stress that, that there is a price to pay to gain wisdom. There's a sacrifice that has to be made. And so you listen to that and you say, well, I don't know if it's a price that I want to pay. Well, this is what I would say to you the price you pay for not gaining wisdom is even higher. Does that make sense? If you don't want to pay the price to gain wisdom and you want to go through life and you want to be foolish, you are going to pay an incredibly higher price for that. So, I mean, that's not my opinion. You look at these verses and that's what we're going to be seeing as we, as we kind of move on here because after talking about the importance of acquiring wisdom, what God does is he tells us about the benefits of, giving, of gaining wisdom. It's almost like God says to us, pursue wisdom, and now he tells us why we should so that we can be motivated to do so. Let me get you to notice something. Look down at the verses. The phrase, if you, occurs three times in in verse one. My son, if you receive my words. Verse three, yes, 
if you call out for insight. And then verse 4, if you seek it like silver. And so this shows, as we've been discussing, the conditional nature. That it, that it, or by conditional, I mean it depends on us. It is conditional on us to acquire wisdom. We have a part in it. Now, the following verses contain the phrase, then you will. Look in verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Look in verse 9. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. So you've got the if statements of verses 1 through 4 where God says, if you will do these things, then these things will be true, or then these things will happen. So it is, it's a, there's a very conditional nature here where God says, if you do this, then this will be the case. God wants us to know why we should pursue wisdom so diligently. So he shares the benefits, and they're divided into two categories. We'll talk about each of these categories of benefits. The first category of benefits relates to the vertical, or relates to our relationship with the Lord, and this brings us to lesson three. Acquiring wisdom has vertical benefits. Acquiring wisdom has vertical benefits. So if you do what he's saying in verses 1 through 4, look at verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. We've talked about this many times up to this point. When I see the same thing, and what I mean by that is the association between wisdom and fearing God. This is just one more verse making a point that we have seen many times. Now, when I see the Bible repeating itself, or let me say it like this, when you see the Bible repeating itself, do not do this. Do not look and say, oh, that must be a mistake. Or, oh, how unfortunate it is that God said the same thing here that he said in this other place that I was reading. Don't do that. When God repeats himself, this is his way of making sure you don't miss something, and God wants us to understand this association between fearing him and wisdom. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. To fear God is to, be, is to find wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom. And to have wisdom or acquire wisdom is to fear God. You cannot. So if you ever meet a person who doesn't fear God, it, I don't, it doesn't matter. What they say, they are foolish. They do not have wisdom. If, let me say that very clearly. If someone does not fear God, they are unwise. They do not have wisdom. No matter how they talk, no matter what they say, no matter how they try to convince you that they're wise, if you recognize an absence of fear of God in their lives, then that is an unwise person that you don't want to be too, too close with and probably someone you should be preaching the gospel to instead. And so one more time, verse 5 says, then if you acquire wisdom, you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And this explains why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Once you have the fear of the Lord, then God will give you wisdom. That's why this is an essential aspect of having wisdom is fearing God because he's the one who gives it to those people who fear him. He's the source of it and he lavishes it on people who have a fear of him. If you write in your Bible, if it doesn't already contain this cross-reference, you can circle the words, the Lord gives wisdom, and you can write James 1.5. You can circle the words, the Lord gives wisdom, and you can write James 1.5, which says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, and also in this verse, I want you to notice this, it reveals the clearest or, or most significant way God gives wisdom, it says, from his mouth, which is to say he, he speaks it. 
We receive wisdom as God speaks it to us. And that's what the New Testament says about the Word of God. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, long ago at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So as the prophets spoke, God was speaking. So when people heard from uh, godly prophets, not false prophets, they were hearing from God himself because they were his mouthpiece. They were repeating the words that he had, he had shared with them. And then 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this, first of all, there's no prophecy of Scripture that came from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. God was speaking through them as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so this is, this is, I almost, I didn't go with this choice, but we could have called this sermon the paradoxical nature of wisdom. Because in this verse, wisdom is presented as a gift. Now, by definition, what makes something a gift? You didn't what? (laughs) You didn't work for it. You didn't strive for it. I mean, that's why it was a gift. It was given to you. And right here it says, the Lord gives wisdom. It's a gift to us. And so you say, okay, well, if the Lord gives wisdom, why are there other verses that describe us having to pursue it? I mean, do we, is, is, so you could say, well, is wisdom a gift or do we work hard to get it? And I would say, yes, it's both. You know, is wisdom a gift? Yes. And must we pursue it diligently? Yes. And so here's the balance. God has spoken to us through his word. He has made it available. He has given it to us as a gift, but we still have a responsibility with his word to read it, to, to study it, to meditate on it, you know, to, to mine the treasures from it. I mean, to take God's word and then not to be diligent with it would be not to, not to gain wisdom, even though you have been given this tremendous gift. And so that's one of the main points here. Go ahead and look at verse 7. It says, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. This is what God does. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. He's guarding the paths of justice, and he's walking over the way of his saints. These two verses are filled with titles for believers. There's three different titles that I can see. The upright, that's a way to refer to believers. Those who walk in integrity, that's another way to refer to believers. And then he says, the way of his saints, and saints is another title for believers. Now, in a pre- I mean, earlier in the sermon, I said that acquiring wisdom doesn't require a high intelligence or a high, high IQ, but it does require conversion. To receive wisdom, you must be saved because the unsaved person is, is spiritually blind and spiritually deaf to spiritual truths. And so an un, unregenerate man cannot receive wisdom. I mean, an unregenerate man would, would hear or receive wisdom like, you know, basically a dead person would. Not at all. It's, it's just not going to penetrate. But for believers, look what it says. It says God stores up sound wisdom for his, for his people or for believers. He gives wisdom to the righteous or to believers. He has plenty of it for those who are living upright lives. All ways to say that God gives wisdom to believers. When Jesus was on uh, the earth and he was preaching, I mean, during Jesus' earthly ministry, think about what he said with parables. That's a good illustration of this. There were two people, two categories or two groups that heard Jesus' parables. They all physically heard it, but only one group spiritually heard it. Jesus was talking and there were these unregenerate people and Jesus said, Matthew 13, 13, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see 
and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, the eyes of believers, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So wisdom, hidden, concealed from unbelievers, but revealed to believers. And that's why, if one of the evidences, if you're, you're dealing with your children, you're wondering about their salvation, no guarantee that being raised in a Christian home makes children um, Christians. And so you're looking at your children and you're, you're wondering whether they're saved or not. And one of the clearest evidences is spiritual understanding. That might, you know, not be as attractive as children that, um, you know, are doing, you know, super wonderful, glamorous works for the Lord. But when children can understand Scripture, that is a tremendous evidence of salvation because you're looking at children who have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit and had the eyes and ears of their heart opened to understand God's Word. And so when we have family Bible studies, I'm trying to see if my children can, you know, understand spiritual truths. And if they can, then that gives me, that gives me um, more confidence in their salvation. Notice these verses are filled with the language of protection. It says that God is a shield to those who walk in integrity. He's guarding their paths. He's watching over the way of his saints. It's all this language of God actively. I mean, I, and I want you to miss this. I think it's tremendously encouraging. Blessed me to read this and think about it. That God is actively working to defend and to guard and to protect his children or those with wisdom. And so you say, well, what does that look like practically? What does it practically look like for God to be defending those with wisdom, to guard them and to, and to protect them? Well, here's what it looks like. When you have wisdom, it keeps you out of trouble. I mean, that is a simple way to say it. The way that God is guarding people by giving them wisdom is it allows them to make good decisions that don't bring unnecessary suffering into their lives. Now, trials, everyone experiences trials and suffering. I mean, the Bible says that the God the Father taught his sons his son, obedience by what he suffered. So we're all going to suffer, but there's also an unnecessary suffering we experience because of the foolishness of our decisions, right? I mean, what credit is, Peter says, what credit is it to you? It's a credit when you receive trials well, but what credit is it to you when you suffer well because of the bad decisions you've made? And so one way that God protects and guards and defends his children is he gives them wisdom so that they make good decisions and stay on good paths for their lives, whereas the foolish people just find themselves getting in trouble. There's been a few times in my Christian life where I've been talking to a friend, and I was looking at, at him and what he suffered, and I said, you know, just, I almost am surprised that you would continue doing what you're doing just because how, of how much grief it's causing you. I would just think because of all that you're going through and how miserable it is that that alone would cause you to want to make wise decisions. And stop. I didn't even have to rebuke the person. I didn't even have to tell the person that what they were doing was, was that sinful because they were suffering so much simply because of the decisions, the foolish decisions they were making. Now, the wise person doesn't have to go through that because they're protected or guarded or defended from it because of the wisdom God's given them. And wisdom doesn't only have vertical benefits, there's also horizontal benefits. This brings us to lesson four. Wisdom has horizontal benefits. This refers to our relationships with others. Verse nine, 
He says, then you'll understand righteousness and justice and equity in every good path. And so these are virtues, and the Father is saying that wisdom is the way to these virtues. Wise people are virtuous people, virtuous people are wise people. Wisdom allows people to understand, understand righteousness, understand justice, understand equity. And I want you to notice this verse begins with the word then. This is important. This is saying you will understand these things. It's saying, then you will understand these things after you have wisdom, which implies what? You don't understand these things without wisdom or previously. In other words, you don't understand righteousness, you don't understand justice, and you don't understand equity without wisdom. We could have a whole other sermon on this because I think the tremendous application this has for our culture. You can look around and you can see how poorly people understand these things, righteousness, justice, and equity. And here's what I mean by that. It's just to murder babies. Or if you were to think about the Black Lives Matter movement, we're talking about social justice, which is basically injustice. And if you look at this verse, it says, without wisdom, you won't understand justice. Does that make sense? And that's why we see what we're seeing because of an absence of wisdom. Why would, why would it be equitable for a man to compete in women's sports except there's the absence of wisdom to understand what equity is? I mean, that's, it, there's, a, there's a, sometimes, don't you just almost feel like you expect people to just throw up their hands and acknowledge the absurdity of what they're doing? Isn't there this point where you're like, you... I cannot believe that you can sit through that interview with a straight face and defend men and women's sports. And I can't believe that even though your DNA would argue your gender, you could tell me that you don't think that you're that gender. And that's, and that's not the worst part. Then the worst part would be people that would say that what's equitable is for a man to be able to be a woman or for a woman to be able to be a man. And so my point is right here when it says, then after you have wisdom, that's when you will understand righteousness. That's when you will understand justice. That's when you will understand equity. But before that, you end up with the world that we're in, where everything is perverted and twisted and people don't understand what's righteous and unrighteous, where, where what, you know, to, to really to defend women would be to let them murder their babies. That's what would be righteous and equitable in the world's eyes. And that's why we see what we see, because there are unconverted people who don't, who don't have wisdom. And so they can't process these things correctly. They come up with these perverted and these, these twisted versions of these things. Notice it says every good path, every good path. These verses are about the blessings God's people enjoy when they walk this path of wisdom. And this word for path is interesting. It's the Hebrew word magal, and it means an entrenchment. And then this is important to consider. Entrenchment, that sounds odd, entrenchment. Think of a cart's, a cart's ruts, like if there was a cart and the ruts that the wheels would make, or if, there was, or if there was a wagon and the tracks that the wheels would make, that's the magal, or that's the path that's created. And this is why it's so fitting, because guess what all of us are doing through our decisions? Making paths for ourselves, or ruts, or tracks. And the reason I'm drawing attention to this 
is if, you're, if you have done what verses 1 through 4 say and you have acquired wisdom, then you can trust that God is putting you on a good path. He's making sure that your life has, is, in a, in a, is in a solid, we don't like to say you're in a rut, but there's nothing wrong with being in a rut if it's a good rut, right? And so these verses are saying that to have wisdom means God will put you on a good, that's, look at the end of the verse. Then you'll understand righteousness, justice, equity, and every good path. God will give you wisdom so that you find yourself on that good path for your life. There's such, so much confusion about what wisdom is. Wisdom isn't knowing the future. Wisdom isn't being in the place of God to look down and understand why every single thing is or isn't happening. But wisdom is making the right decisions and navigating through life well. And this is saying if you have wisdom, God will make sure that you're on a good path. Look at verse 10. Wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And this is where we want wisdom. We want it in our heart. Proverbs 4.23, it says, from your heart flow the springs of life. So if you get wisdom in your heart, it's going to affect every, every decision you make, or just give me your attention for a moment. Every decision you make flows or comes from what's in your heart. You make every decision based on what is in your heart. So if there's one place you want wisdom, it is in your heart. And that's what it's saying here. If you acquire godly biblical wisdom, it will come into your heart. The heart, and then notice it also talks about the soul. These are internal. It's part of who we are. And if we consider the context, this makes a beautiful point. Sometimes when we, well, let me say this. We all make good decisions for one of two reasons. We make good decisions because of external pressure or we make good decisions because of what's going on internally. Let me explain this. Sometimes doing what's right requires external pressure. You don't want to be punished or you don't want to get in trouble. If I just use an example with children, if the children give me their attention for a moment. Every single time one of you children make a good decision, your parents or we are looking at you and we're wondering why you made that right decision or good decision. Or in other words, we're wondering if you made that good decision for a good reason. And here's what I mean. Because children can make good decisions for bad reasons. (laughs) They can make good decisions to impress someone. They can make good decisions to try to get a reward, implying that they wouldn't have made that decision if they weren't going to get a reward out of it. Children can make good decisions to avoid discipline or punishment which as a parent concerns you because then it makes you think that if this child knew he or she wasn't going to get punished, then they wouldn't have made this decision. And they made the decision just so that they would avoid unnecessary discipline. So basically, you're making the right decision, but for the wrong reason. You're making the right decision because of the external pressure. If you understand that, then you see the beauty of this verse. It's saying wisdom will come into your heart and your soul And then you'll make the right decision for internal reasons or because that's what's in your heart. And that's what all of us as parents want for our children. We want our children making the right decision because that's within their heart because they've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and it has transformed them. I mean, how many, think about Joash. As Joash Joash grew up in the temple under Jehoiada, he made all the right decisions because of the external pressure of being in the temple having Jehoiada, this godly man, as a father figure for him. And when Jehoiada died, then what happened? 
He, Jehoash just turned away from the Lord because he no longer had that external pressure because none of this was in his heart. The wisdom wasn't in his heart. He had not been converted. And so every parent is just wondering, what is really in my child's heart? Why are they making this decision? And we know it's, it's only the gospel that is going to cause them to make the right decisions for the right reasons. How many parents can sit back and see a rebellious child when their child leaves the home, but when the child was in the home, how did the child look? Good. Behaved. Moral. But the gospel, that child had not surrendered his or her life to Christ. Basically, verse 10 is saying you'll make the right decisions because the gospel has changed your heart. Listen to these verses from Ezekiel that make the same point. Ezekiel 126, I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He says, I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and I'll cause you to obey me by doing what? By changing your heart. That's what he says. God said, because God, what, what could God not use to change his people's hearts? You see it. They got it at Sinai, the law, right? The law told them what to do, but the law could not change their hearts. And so God says, what I have to do is the new covenant. I have to reach into your heart and I have to give you a brand new heart that will produce obedience in you because the law will not do it. Now, wise people, they develop this God-given moral compass in their hearts, which is why it says that it's pleasant to the soul. It's pleasant to the soul. One commentator, Garrett, he said, wisdom gives both pleasure and sure-footedness in life. The more wisdom that one learns, the more one desires and enjoys it. The protection wisdom gives, moreover, is that it keeps its follower from making decisions that will later bring only regret. And I like this quote. I think it's making a few important points related to this this morning's sermon. For those who reject wisdom, they are inevitably going to experience what later? Regret. That's what he says. Regret is the inevitable outcome or experience for everyone who rejects wisdom or chooses foolishness. And what is the epitome of rejecting wisdom? It's rejecting Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, perishing eternally, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the gospel is foolishness to the unsaved or to the unregenerate. It is not pleasant to their soul. They will be filled with eternal regret because of their rejection. Now, if you sit here this morning and you feel like you've been on the path of foolishness, you listen to these sermons and you say, well, I regret that I haven't been wiser. I regret that I have been foolish. Well, by God's grace, it's not too late. You've been given a new day. You've been given another opportunity that you can repent. And you can say, I've been on the bad path, and I want to be on the good path. I've been on the wide way that leads to destruction, and I want to be on the narrow way that leads to life. It isn't too late for that repentance and that choice. For those who pursue wisdom, which is found in God's word and found in a relationship with Christ, it will lead to no regrets. There's no person who pursues wisdom and ever looks back and regrets it or feels like it was a poor investment of time or energy. They will find wisdom to be pleasant to their soul. They will experience wisdom's benefits. They will be protected and guided into the right decisions they should make, and they will find themselves on those good paths. Father, we thank you for the blessings and benefits that wisdom provides. 
I pray that all of us can grow in wisdom, and I pray for any of those who are unsaved and spiritually blind uh, to the truth that you would open the eyes and ears of their hearts. I think about Lydia, and it says you opened her heart to the gospel. And I pray that you would do that for anybody who's been foolish and has rejected Christ, uh, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And if there's any ways in our lives as believers in which we're just being foolish, perhaps we're not fools in terms of rejecting Christ, but there's decisions we're making that we shouldn't be making. Reveal those to us and grant us repentance. And I pray that you would help us to apply these verses and pursue wisdom as we should. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.